Turn with me, please, to uh, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. I remind you, this is God's inerrant and infallible word. God spoke through men, holy men of God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, who wrote and who dictated uh, to their amanuenses, who, who wrote epistles, uh, who proclaimed the word of God. Let's hear God's word. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us and he said then i beg you father that you send him to my father's house for i have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment but abraham said they have moses and the prophets let them hear them But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, sovereign God, for your blessing to be upon your word this morning. Give us receptive hearts, able to hear. We pray this morning that someone who is listening, watching, or hearing, who might listen to this sermon in some way and hear this text, that you, Holy Spirit of God, would work sovereignly to bring about a change in their disposition and their soul. We pray that they would believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would empower us as your people to go forth with the gospel this morning, that we would take seriously our calling to serve you, to proclaim your word in a smaller way as we interact with people around us. We pray that you would make us faithful messengers of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a universal principle, and I know that we all know it. We're told that two things in this life are absolutely certain, death and taxes. Now, taxes are coming up, tax day, April 15th. The day is coming quickly, and I'll tell you, I'm already thinking about it. I know it's coming. For me, tax season is agony. Not, not. I don't want in any way to say that it in any way reflects, although I use the same word, it's very different. Uh, so let me use a different word. 
Uh, it's a form of torture. <laughs> Taxes are horrible. And yet uh, I know it's coming and I have to prepare for it. And so if I, unless I prepare, if I don't prepare for it, it will be worse. And so what I do is I think ahead and I prepare for what I know inevitably is coming. However, death is something, though I know it's coming, I'm not so well prepared for. And I think Christians oftentimes don't really want to think about death. I think once in a while, in light of God's word, it is good for us to dwell upon the realities of death and the truth of hell. All of us will die, each of us, for all of us listening, whether believers or unbelievers, there is an eternity, either a blessing and immediate relationship with God in heaven, where the scriptures tell us for, for, for that precious in the sight of God are the deaths of his people, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's not something where we, we wait during a duration of, or a time period, rather to depart from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or we will pass to eternal death and endurance of the curse, suffering and punishment in hell, again, immediately upon death. We really don't like to think about this. For any of us, this could be our last year on this earth. None of us knows, none of us really understands the timing of death. In the blink of an eye, we step out of the temporal and immediately into the eternity. It could be an unseen automobile accident, uh, the ravages of disease, the end of a long battle against decline, a sudden heart attack, any series of unforeseen and unexpected tragic circumstances. For all of us, regardless of timing, regardless of circumstances, death is coming. And when that appointed day comes, we'll pass immediately into glory or into fire. Your soul will not sleep. You will not lose consciousness. You will not pass into limbo. Your soul will not be annihilated. Your spirit will not be reincarnated. Men can question it. They can say that this is only symbolic. And yet the truth of the matter is that Scripture says over and over and over and over and over and over again that hell is real. There will be no time in purgatory. Your spirit will not be reincarnated. You either go to God and everlasting joy or to hell and everlasting torment. You can't address this question at the end of your life or after you die. But let me ask you this morning, where are you going? Where do you stand before God? You can pile up all your sins and say, look at all these sins. Look at all I've done. I don't know where I'm going. And yet I'll point you to this one reality. Regardless of the immensity of your sin, trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone justifies you, can justify you before God. It's not about the volume of your sin. It's about the volume of grace. It's about the immensity of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And whether or not you're counting upon him, whether or not you've staked your life on Christ, have you? Have you? 
Let me set this passage in context. <clears throat> Jesus has been speaking to the to the crowds. I, amongst the crowds are his own disciples. They're all there, but beyond them on the periphery are Pharisees and unbelievers. They're they're the scoffers. They're the ones who hate Jesus. He's he's recounted a story already in this passage, the dishonest manager. Uh, warnings of living shrewdly have been given to his disciples in light of judgment. He has said, look, look, be shrewd in your, in your conduct and in your transactions regarding heaven itself. You should be carefully preparing for heaven, using money with an eternal perspective, storing up treasure in heaven, he tells his disciples. The Pharisees, now, they are lovers of money in verse 14, and they're listening to all these things, and they're scoffing at him. It is also said that in verse 10, I think Jesus has made this observation about the Pharisees. He who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous unrighteous also in much. I think, I think he's making a statement about the Pharisees there. He also makes a statement about them in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He very much has the Pharisees in view. They're within the crowd and they're listening. And there are observations within the text. Uh, they are lovers of money. They've heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They were making light of what he said. Their, their entire system is based, and their personal trust is based upon appearing before God uh, or, or appearing godly to other people around them, maintaining their position as religious authorities. They're concerned to justify themselves before mankind, but not before God. And Jesus has said that in verses 14 through 18. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. He rebukes them. And he tells them that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Pleasing mankind, being justified before men, doing things in order to be noticed are disgusting in God's sight. He gives further instructions in verses 16 through 18, recently of which we have looked through the law condemning these Pharisees. The law condemns them and, and shows them that they are in need of God's grace in Christ. Well, in light of all of this context, there is a further parable. One takes notice when Jesus shares parables. And here is a parable with an, an intention. Parables are intended to hide spiritual truths from those who are scoffers and who refuse to believe. But they are also intended to show and to explain, to, to illustrate an, a, 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 a vital principle. It's like you or I, if we would take aside our children and tell them a, a story that has a, a uh, some kind of a, a, a moral to the story, we intend for them to learn some kind of a lesson from it. And so that is essentially what the Lord Jesus, our Savior, is doing. So he tells a story about two men. One is rich, one is poor. There are two deaths, they both die. One is buried, the other is not. 
Two men, they die at approximately the same time. They have two destinies, two destinations, each of them. One ascends to the Abraham's bosom, which is symbolic of heaven. And the other goes immediately to hell. Where he is in an immediate state of suffering. Two men are pictured in their endurance and their experience of eternity. And so they're, they're largely our, our, our outline this morning. First, we're going to see the rich man and the poor man living. Two men, the rich man and the poor man alive. They're living. Well, the rich man is the first one we see. And what a, what a life of opulence. He's, he's like a modern-day Kardashian, a, a modern-day male Kardashian. They have an outfit for every day of the week, don't they? I think they have an outfit for every, every half an hour. I don't watch them. I'm not interested in them. But once in a while, I might see a clip in the news or when watching some, some YouTube video and instruction on how to repair my dryer this last week, there was an advertisement for Kim Kardashian and some, some Kardashian something, I, I don't know, in some show. Those girls change their outfits every every five minutes, I think. Well, this man, although he didn't change his outfits every five minutes, he's got the, the, the best clothing possible for his time. I know we look back with chagrin at uh, maybe 30, 40 years ago when we wore certain outfits and think we think, what, what was I thinking? And we might look back and say, well, I have no interest in purple robes. But in that time, purple robes were, were opulent. We read about the Psalm 31 woman. And what does she do? She adorns her family in purple. She, she makes purple robes. And we might say, well, shouldn't we condemn that behavior? Well, no, because, you know, she remembers the needs of the poor. It says in the same passage. It also says she has a fear of the Lord. She loves God. This man, no such thing is stated of him. He does not remember the needy. He has no fear of God. None of that. But he does love himself. He is rich. He is not a believer. He is worldly. He has worked all the days of his life to accumulate wealth. And if you ask him what's the most important thing in your life, he would say, my money. This was his motivating principle. And he really represents the Pharisees here in our passage. Clearly, Jesus is speaking to them. He has, speak, he has spoken prominently and clearly to them. This man had family members. He had neighborhoods who, who loved and adored him because there was a funeral and people attended. He was a prominent citizen. He likely had children, but more than anything, he loved his money. When he would come home at the end of the day, he counted his money. And when he went to bed at night, he thought about his money. When he awoke in the morning, he made the pursuit of money his lifelong, day-long pursuit. And he didn't stop very often except to pursue more money. He loved himself. He loved his money. He dressed in purpose, with, with purpose, in, in ostentation. His intention was to be noticed to be seen, and to have the best. And he did. He was self-absorbed. Purple dye and purple things were, were clothing was typically reserved for royalty. But for him, it was not too much to have. It was his right as a very rich man. He didn't deny himself anything that made himself look good and feel good. He ate sumptuously every day. He didn't deny himself any of their latest delicacies. 
He was religious, though, in verse 23 and 29 and 31, as he is observing Lazarus in his new place of abode there in heaven. He is able to see him enjoying comfort and encouragement at the, in the very presence of God. He knows he sees, and he knows Abraham when he sees him. And he says, Father Abraham. You see, there's a religiosity to this rich man. He knows spiritual things. He could argue himself out of a paper bag, and he does. He tries. Some relief. Little bit of relief. An evangelistic zeal for his five brothers and his family members. He's a religious man. He knows who Abraham is. But his religion has been peripheral. It's been a show. In the account of who this man is and what he possesses, not anything of who he is as a, as a son of God is in any way given. There is no description of him as a God-fearing man. He knows who Abraham is. He has acknowledged God, but his first love and his life-motivating principle is himself and his money. He's not considered his eternity. He has made an assumption about his eternity. He has everything, but he doesn't have God. He has no desire for anything other than what he possesses, and he's content with his life, and he does not desire eternity. Do you see that? He is content with his purple robes. He is content with a full table. He is content with an abundance. He is content with full coffers. He is content with his money. And he has no desire for God. No interest in the fear of God. No interest whatsoever in his soul's health and, 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 and nurture. But the poor man is outside of his gate. You see, he lives in a prominent place and many people come to visit. And so his friends, someone has deposited him there right at the edge of the gate. So that as the wealthy and the opulent come in, there might be an appeal to their softer side that they would help this poor man covered in sores. There he would beg He was dependent upon other people. He was not like the modern day people who have a sign, who are able to say anything helps, God bless, who walk away and get in their cars and drive to their homes, counting their money. It's not like that at all. This man had nothing. He had nowhere to go. He slept on the tar. He slept at the intersection. And he didn't have anywhere to go at the end of the day. And he wouldn't reject food if you offered it to him. He was longing for not a good meal from the Panera Bread store. He was longing for the scraps from the table. Now, maybe you've seen what that looks like. When I was a boy, I worked in a high-end restaurant up in the Northampton Holyoke area. And at the end of a long night of partying, uh, not we ourselves, but 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 I was merely a busboy. We would go to these parties and and these the the in the, uh, the these banquet houses, and it was our duty not only to set the plates, but then to go after and to clean the plates away. And it blew my mind how many on nights when filet mignon or wonderful ribeye steak were laid out on the plates, how many plates came back and nothing had been touched. Many of us would simply take, if there was a filet mignon that looked untouched, we would take it off that plate, put it aside, reheat it, and eat it. It was that good. 
the things we do in our younger pre-COVID days. But now, we, of course, we all know better. But, but, but that's, that's just what people do in the back rooms of restaurants, if you didn't know. As long as we have a reasonable assurance that no one touched that thing, we'll eat it. But we would throw away and we would all of us line up one after the other when we would come in great teams. And, and there would be multiple trips upstairs to the area where we would dump plate after plate after plate after plate after plate after plate after plate of food that was uneaten. Hundreds and hundreds of, of pounds of food that was not eaten. We know what table leftovers look like. Well, this man longs for what drops to the ground. He is that hungry. He is so hungry that he longs for. And in in the passage, we are not told that he is given that food. We are not told that the rich man said, look, collect the extra food that we have not eaten and bring it out to Lazarus at the gate because his condition would be improving, would it not? He would be improving physically and perhaps he would be helped with regard to his health, his physical health. We are only told that he longed for the scraps that fell from that rich man's table. We are not told that he brought that food to him. And he did not. Although, later on in the passage, we understand that the rich man knew precisely who this man was. He knows his name. This man is so deeply poor and his his condition is such that we would weep over it. He is carried, he is laid at the gate in order to beg. He's covered with sores, he begs for his subsistence. Each day is filled with longing for food that he can observe, but he is not permitted to eat. He desired the leftovers and the dogs come and lick his sores. He has nothing of the world's resources. But in the passage, we are told in some way, as we'll see in a few moments, he does have, he is a rich man. <laughs> the rich man who would be rich is in full and abject poverty, spiritual poverty. He has nothing with regard to his life with God. In the inner part of his, in his soul, there is no health whatsoever. In fact, he is utterly depraved, utterly destitute, and he has nothing upon which to stand. However, this poor man is deeply rich because the provision of God for his eternity has been poured out upon him. When he dies, what happens? The angels come and bring him home. The rich man, when he dies, what happens to him? His body goes to the grave. He is merely dead. And his soul soul ascends to hell. Well, this man, <clears throat> the dogs come and they lick his arms, his body, which is broken, opened wounds and sores. You see, because he is contending with the dogs for scraps. Now, these are not your family dogs. These are not pets. They are, they are wild dogs that would roam the streets. They're looking for garbage that's thrown out into the streets. And that's who he is contending with to eat. The dogs know him and they alone give him some form of relief as they lick his wounds. He has no possessions at all, no food, no money. He has no new clothing, no benefactor, no friend. The only thing he has is God. And all he longs for is eternity. 
The second portion of this passage is simply this. We see the rich man and the poor man living. Or, pardon me, the first the first portion was that we see the rich man and the poor man living, but now we see the rich man and the poor man dying. We see these two men living, and now we see them dying. The only similarity is between the two is that they died. They both died. We don't know how they died or what they died of, but they died. Rich men tend to die of rich man diseases. Heart attacks, obesity. They, they struggle with with. With gout, uh, we, they struggle with high blood pressure. They struggle with high cholesterol, things like that. Poor persons typically die of different things. They die of malnourishment and deprivation and of ravaging, in, internally ravaging diseases. They both died. And the reality is that all mankind will die. Every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth will die. The rich man died, his riches didn't keep him from it, and the poor man died. They both died. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment. They didn't die in the same way. The poor man, there's no funeral, no obituary, no friends there to proclaim his death. It wasn't in the local papers that so-and-so died, but he was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. In other words, in this symbolic language, he is carried away directly into the presence of God. He has a close relationship with God by virtue of his faith in God and in the salvation he provides. There's no notification of his death to anyone, but heaven took notice. If the rich man was still there on earth, he would walk by his gates and not in any way notice the fact that the poor man was gone. He would only in some way give thanks that no longer was this eyesore next to his gate. This man immediately, the poor man, goes, is caught up into heaven by God's ministering angels because his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And so he goes to heaven. Now the rich man, he has a funeral. People attend, many pay their respects. There is an obituary that that recounts all the glories of who and what this man is and what he has done. The riches that he has had. Perhaps he's written an autobiography to be released upon his death. Perhaps there is a biography made up by someone else who in fact writes down what glories this man has accomplished. Oh, he was a self-accomplishing man. He was a self-made man. He went penniless into the world and he left with a great legacy of riches behind him. We don't know. There are many in the world who desired a portion of what he possessed. And isn't it in Ecclesiastes that that, that the preacher asks, that Solomon says, what, does, what good does it do for a man to accumulate a vast amount of wealth? Because after he dies, what he, what he has is simply divided amongst those who are left behind. And if you don't have a will, it goes to the state. Who wants that? His name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's no mention of ministering angels. He died in separation from the God he did not want in his flesh. The God he had no desire for, the eternity he was not prepared for, his soul unprepared for this great calamity. 
He did not go to God. He went to hell. And the worst part of hell is not the fire and the agony of torment. It is separation from God, which cannot in any way be repaired. And so thirdly, we see the rich man and the poor man living in eternity. Make no mistake, both are alive. Their soul lives, though they are not yet united to their bodies in the great resurrection Physically, nonetheless, spiritually, they are alive. What makes you a person is less of your body and your flesh. It is who you are as a person. It is your soul. And your soul upon death, when the silver cord is snapped between soul and body, your soul will ascend to heaven or descend to hell, one or the other. There are two different destinies here. The poor man, his soul, his personage, Body is cast aside, left, who knows where, in some gutter somewhere. No one buries him. But the person who he is, he is a living soul. And you, dear friend, no matter who you are, you are an eternal soul. God has created you with a body and an eternal soul. And your eternal soul will live after you die. Where will that bot, where will that soul go? Where will your soul be found when you die? This fine man, this poor man who suffered through terrible calamities in this life. We can't help but think of those who are, who embrace the prosperity gospel who would say, you see that man, he's suffering because he lacks faith. If he only had enough faith, he could name and claim what God promises to all his people. And yet he would ignore the suffering of Job, the suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He would ignore the plight of believers in this world that Paul relates. They are sawn in two in in, in Hebrews. The world is not worthy of them. They are persecuted. They are jailed. They are sawn in two. They are tortured. They are beaten. They are broken. It's absolute bull. For anyone who would tell you that if you're truly a Christian... You'll have nothing but joy and plenty and God wants you wealthy. What an idea from the very depths of hell. God wants you holy. God's intention is to make you like His Son. God desires that you should share in His righteousness. He may make you wealthy. And that adds upon you a tremendous depth and burden of stewardship to make certain that you store up in heaven treasures that you might not be lost and embraced in all of your love of wealth. Wealth is a curse, dear friends. And some of us don't feel so wealthy this morning. Our bills are overwhelming and perhaps we owe too much. But if you live in America, you are wealthy beyond the dreams of most people in this world. Are we not, can we not say with honesty, yes, I am beguiled by the riches that God has given to me. I find I am often distracted by what I have, what I possess, what I long for, what I want, what I desire. 
Well, this man is in Abraham's bosom. He has fellowship with believers in heaven. He is in a place of comfort, we are told in the passage. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 that all those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. This man is a man of faith. He believes. And so his eternity is immediately to pass into the presence of God. His, the immediacy of his death means that he immediately goes to God. He, his eyes begin to fade. His heart begins to fail. His inner organs begin to fail. And, and he feels life ebbing away. The dog's licking his wounds. He sees with longing the food he so desires. And then in a moment he has ascended and he is with God in glorious raiment. His suffering is ended and he is immediately comforted by the presence of God. And that's the state of every believer upon death. I was reminded of that from the Valley of Vision this week where there is a prayer that, that speaks of what it's like for the believer in heaven. May I arrive where means of grace cease, and I know I need no more to fast or pray, weep or watch, be tempted, attend preaching and sacrament, where nothing defiles, where is no grief or sorrow, sin, death, separation, tears, pale face, languid body, aching joints, feeble infancy, decrepit age, peccant to humors, pining sickness, gripping fears, consuming cares, where is personal completeness, where the more perfect the sight, the more beautiful the object, the more perfect the appetite, the sweeter the food, the more musical the air, the more pleasant the melody, the more complete the soul, the more happiest joys, where is fullness of knowledge of you, God. Well, the rich man goes to hell. I want, to, I want to tell you this morning, this is nothing we should in any way gloat over as we feel in some way that, oh yeah, the rich man, he's going to get his. This man is a soul. And he has entered, although this is an, a, a parable, nonetheless, Jesus speaks from the experience of knowing men and women who died, who had no appetite for the things of God and who died and were lost in their sins. Jesus knows every human being. He knows them all. They have been made by and for him. There is nothing happy about a man who would suffer and who would embrace the suffering of hell for all eternity. Make no mistake, he has done that. If he has any religious knowledge of who Abraham is, then he knows he has been warned by what is about to happen to him upon his death. He is aware of hell. He is aware of what it means to be apart from God. I want to I want to take careful note of what we learn about hell here as this man is suffering. He is in a real place, not an imaginary place. Some say it's in the center of the earth. I, I don't buy that. Uh, hell is a, a real place on another plane of existence that you and I and as temporal human beings cannot see. It is a place of real human suffering where a soul goes and will experience eternal, unending, foreverlasting fire and torment and agony and weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
It's not imaginary. It is Hades, the place of the wicked. It is where the wicked go and die and die eternally. Other passages throughout Scripture refer to Hades. It's as real as any other place like Boston, Massachusetts, or Springfield, Massachusetts. It's as real as Kiev, Ukraine. One way or the other, it's as real as any other place hell is. The Bible has a great deal to say about hell. It says all of this and more. It references 162 references in the New Testament alone that warn of hell. 162 times. You cannot get to hell one day and say, I never knew about this. <clears throat> if, if you didn't, or if you don't, then you never open the Word of God. And if you never open the Word of God, it was because you did not want to. Over 70 of those 162 references were uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said 70 for different times. He made reference to hell itself. Luke 16:24, I am in torment in this flame. Matthew 13:42, and I shall ca- and they shall be cast into a furnace of fire. There there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25:41, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Revelation 20:15, Whosoever will not whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 13:42, and they shall be cast into the furnace of fire and there they shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth revelation 14 11 the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night there are many many other passages mark 9 48 where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched Revelation 19.20, the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's pretty comprehensive. There are 165 references to the exact same theme. This man died and he was buried and he went immediately to hell. It was instantaneous. It was immediate. It was before the funeral had even occurred. Think about it. This man's life ebbed and he died. And before his family could arrange and make arrangements for a funeral, he was in hell. Oh, how foolish we are when we say he has gone on to a better place. When we are utterly ignorant of the state of this person's soul. We are simply told that the rich man, when he died, the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. The very next verse, in Hades, he lifted up his his eyes, being in torment. 
If you, if you do not believe in Christ, if you have no appetite for God, if you do not have the fear of the Lord, if you have no interest in spiritual things, if you have no desire to believe and thus nurture your soul, the moment you die, you will instantaneously be in hell. And you will never leave. He died. He was buried. He was in Hades. Before the funeral was even, had even begun, there was no time to hang his head or plead his case. He is conscious. He is able to see. He is able to reason, to argue, to speak, to observe the great distance, the joy and comfort of Lazarus. He has a dialogue with Abraham. So we might ask of this passage this morning, what is hell like? Well, it's a place of torment, severe and physical and mental suffering. I looked up that word online, torment, severe, physical, and mental suffering. To not only physically be tormented with such pain that it is, it, 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 it encroaches upon our mind and our reason so that we cannot think clearly. Uh, some of us have experienced pain, uh, serious and overwhelming pain that calls for an immediate medicinal to help us to, to, to remain sane. Hell is filled with such pain and torment where you will not be able to think clearly. And it will never stop. Mental suffering where the mind is so overwhelmed with physical suffering and the questions of the mind that one can't even put two words together. It's, it's, it's that face of absolute and utter insanity. It's a state of mind brought on by physical suffering and a place of utter torment. Some of us have been in mental hospitals before, in mental facilities back when they existed. And we have entered into those places and we have seen people and it seemed in utter torment as they would rock back and forth, clinging to themselves, holding on to themselves, their faces in utter anguish. And we think, where is that person's mind? What must they be thinking that has them in such torment? Hell is filled with such people. Not that all who are mental, mentally ill go to hell. That is not the case at all, nor do I imply that. But that all that go to hell, they will find that they will be utterly mentally tormented beyond description. It is a place of sight and observation, reason and mental calculation. Tormented by what he sees, he cries out to Abraham, please send Lazarus with a drop of water that I might have some relief. No. Abraham or, or Abraham says Lazarus had his suffering in his other life. Uh, in his physical life, and now he has comforted you, had all your good things. What you wanted, you have received. Now there is no more receiving. 
of good things. He is tormented by what he sees. It's a place without relief, solitary suffering. He's utterly alone without relief. He's now concerned for the state of his soul. Only now he's taking notice and his soul is not in some new and unforeseen condition. He he cannot be relieved, nor can the torment be ended because when he had the opportunity in the course of his long life, he had no interest in God. We cannot now see the the inevitable end of what choices we have made and thus change our mind. It's like you get to the end of a race and you've made some foolish choices and you've lost. And you say, I want to do it again. Well, no, there is no do-over. It's a place where memory terrorizes one's soul. Abraham says that to him. Child, in verse 25, remember that during your life you received your good things. Child, remember. It's a place where nightmares of what was cast aside come to memory. Every sin and every offense against God is remembered. Sermons that you have heard eternally etched in your mind. This sermon perhaps will even preach to you if you are there one day and you have denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Today will be remembered. You'll remember this day. The gospel you heard. It's a place of anguish. Another word describing severe physical and mental suffering. It's a place of separation. There's a great chasm. He's within sight of heaven. He's able to observe what has never been laid hold of. There's no escape and none can cross over. It's a place where mercy is banished. It's a place of eternal and everlasting unending punishment. His evangelistic fervor is striking. He desires that Lazarus be sent to his brothers, that he might, they might see someone sent from the dead, that they, he might preach to them and tell them, of, warn them of the wrath of God to come. Abraham says they don't need anything more than the word of God. The word of God is sufficient. And because they refuse to believe the word of God, they will not even believe someone who comes back from the dead. They won't believe someone who even rises from the dead. You see, unbelief, unbelief is willingly blind. Unbelief can see the great miracle of Christ who's risen from the dead and they will still refuse to believe in the Savior. This morning, what are you to make of such a passage as this? Oh, uh, the first thing is that you must sincerely, soberly consider the state of your soul. You must consider where is, where am I going when I die? I don't want you to look at your body and think, hmm, I, I, I'm getting old. I've got some tread wear, but I think I've got a good long period of time still to go. Doctor tells me my heart rate is good. My cholesterol is being kept under control. I think things are good. I, I should life expectancy says that I have a reasonable expect, expectation that I can live to 70, maybe 80. I'm going to go on that. Don't assume that people who are 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 5, 1, right out of the womb, die. Every day. Every single 
day. Today is the day of salvation. I know we don't want to think about death. But Christian, you need to recognize this. You were not created to live here forever. You were created to bring glory to God and to live with him eternally. You were not created to live perpetually in this body. God has preserved for you a kingdom which cannot be shaken. God is coming and sending forth his son to inaugurate a new world when heavens and earth will pass away and all things will be made new. He is intended to glorify his son and the salvation of those who are his and who believe in him. We lull ourselves to sleep by thinking this this is God's blessing, perpetual life. And I want to ask the Lord to let me live for as long as I want to live. We rather should be saying, Lord, make my life in this world profitable for you. Help me to be holy and prepare my soul for eternity. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, If these things are yours, brotherly kindness, godliness, self-control, perseverance, knowledge of God, faith, virtue, if these things are yours and, and, you, and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 2, said, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have an obligation as believers to make certain that, and to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. And what that means is we should be looking constantly at the sum total of our lives and what we endure and what we partake of each and every day and consider whether or not uh, the things that we take in, the things that we watch, read, entertain ourselves with, whether or not they are contributing to the health and wealth of our soul. You and I are to take seriously our call and to consider whether or not we are elect of God, to press on to make certain that our faith in Jesus Christ is real, manifest, evident, day by day in the course of our lives. And we are to be diligent in pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter also went on in that great sermon and said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And he cried out, Be saved from this perverse generation. Do you really want to live in this world perpetually? Do you really want to so make yourselves comfortable in this world so that you one day when you do inevitably die, that you will have resources that you're within arm's reach everywhere throughout your home, a full bank account? What, what will that avail you when at the end of your life you do not have God? There's nothing wrong with, with, with wanting good things in life and partaking of what God is willing to provide for us. There is nothing wrong with working hard and diligently for a paycheck in order to provide for our families and to, and to, to, to obtain a good home, a working vehicle, 
There's nothing wrong with saving all that we can. I, I think wonderful advice was given by John Wesley when he said, save all you can, earn all you can, give all you can. But the overarching principle of all of it is that what do we do when we earn all that we can and make all that we can? We do it as unto the glory of God. We do it for the glory of God. And we remember generosity. And we remember the needs of others. And we remember and we honor God with our wealth. And we bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. We return a portion in the sacrifice unto God. We give back an offering unto the Lord out of deep and abiding thanksgiving, knowing that what I have, God has provided. We don't just simply consume and consume and consume and consume and consume. This morning we live in a wicked world, and maybe you haven't seen that yet, but I pray that God enables you to see it. The world is filled with wretched rumors of wars and wars that are ongoing that haven't stopped for generation. Ethnic hatred, strife and difficulty. We don't have ethnic hatred only in America. It it exists on every continent. The Chechnyans hate the Serbians and vice versa. Russians hate the Ukrainians. It, It goes back and forth. Tribal differences. Geological hatred, because you live in this location, you live in that one, even though the reality is all humanity descended from one human being, Adam, even Eve. His ribs were taken, and she was created from him. From Adam and Eve and all their progeny, we, the human race, have come into being. God's creative power. And yet we would be divided against one another. There's gender, intergender hatred. There's intergenerational hatred. What a wretched world we live in. A world consumed with self. A world with no desire for God. But don't you give in to that appetite. Pursue the Lord. And don't fail to obtain what God himself in grace holds out to you, eternal life with Jesus Christ. Forgiveness and pardon of sin. A righteousness you cannot accomplish, but which God demands. It is all yours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you refuse it, and you refuse to believe and you will have nothing of God in this life, you will not have God in the next one. And when you die and your body is separated from your soul, your soul will ascend immediately into everlasting hell. Oh, dear friend, make certain that that is not your eternal state. Turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray.